Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Worship at Grace. You know, Christians believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, He inspired it, and it is profitable in all kinds of practical ways. And while that is definitely true, I want to say that today's passage of Scripture we look at in Colossians 3, in my opinion, is uber-profitable. I mean, this is gold. This is a gem of a passage. It is absolutely incredible. And I invite you now to look at it with me. Let's look at it, and then we'll spend some minutes unpacking it. It says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There it is. That is one gem of a passage, and I'm calling today's message Christ, the one who transforms my personality. I don't know about you, but I need all the help I can get, you know? I want to have a personality that is not only fun, winsome, pleasant, but also one that is encouraging to other people. I want to be a person who honors God and represents the Lord well, yes, even with my personality. So let's break these three verses down into three little sections. First, let's talk about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. I get that, of course, from verse 15 that we just read, which says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, here's the truth. Most of us, our personality, our character is sort of marked more by worrying than by peace. In fact, I want to ask for a show of hands now at all of our locations, if you would. And I'm not asking, are you a chronic worrier? I'm not asking, are you clinically an anxious person. That's not what we're saying if you raise your hand. And I just want you to know my hand is up. Here's what I'm asking you to show by raising your hand. Are you a person who sometimes worries more than you'd like to? Can I just see your hand, please? All right. We're guilty, God. You see it. They're confessing it in the sight of God and everybody. There it is. It's true. We worry about the economy. We worry about where our country is headed. We worry about the values in our culture. We worry about our kids and our grandkids. We worry, do we have enough money saved for a rainy day? We worry about our health and what quality of life we're going to have as we get old. We tend to worry. It's just true. And perhaps most of all, we worry about relationships because we know that relationships are really the essence of life. And if you've lived very long, you know relationships can be really disappointing. 
So let's be honest. When we read a passage like this today, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, we want to go, Paul, are you on drugs? How can that be? I mean, this guy has lost his marbles. Maybe all those beatings he took made his mind crack. But I'm declaring to you that this is not just a pious platitude. It's not a pipe dream. This is a realistic goal, and it's realistic for this reason. Because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Now, if you've not been born again by the Spirit of God, if you don't belong to Jesus Christ, if you're not a member of the family, uh, I pray that God is working in your heart and life today and that you will yield your life to him and come into that relationship. But for those who are in the family, Scripture says, as we saw a few weeks ago, Christ is in you. So the reason this is realistic is because it's not your peace. It's not something that you kind of accomplish through, you know, getting in the lotus position and meditating. It's not something you accomplish through a series of exercises that you kind of pull off, although there are things you can do to cooperate with this. It is Christ in you. It's his peace. And there is a huge distinction between his peace that he's giving you and anything that you and I can conjure up. In other words, this peace that's talking about is not originating from you. Now, just so you know, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible talks a whole lot about peace, P-E-A-C-E. -E. In fact, Jesus and the disciples who wrote scripture, the apostles, they talked over a hundred times in the New Testament about this thing called peace. One of my favorites is the statement that Jesus made in the upper room discourse in John 14. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Probably one of the more popular verses that mentions a, a peace that passes all understanding, of course, is, is Philippians chapter 4, where Paul, in a situation that you wouldn't think you could be very peaceful in, he's in a prison, he's in prison, he doesn't have much freedom there. He's incarcerated. And he said in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. Again, we want to go, are you losing your mind? How, how can you even, that seems so unrealistic. But he says, don't be anxious about anything, but, but here's what you're supposed to do when you find yourself with some anxiety building. But in everything, is anything left out of everything? No. In everything, by prayer and petition, petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the promise. And the peace of God, again, not your peace, not something you conjured up, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You say, well, how does this work? Because, you know, Paul starts all of his letters with these beliefs, 
And then he moves on to behaviors that ought to flow out of these beliefs. And so chapters one and two of Colossians were all about beliefs, doctrine. Chapters three and four are more about duty or behaviors that flow out of those fantastic doctrinal beliefs. So this has got to pass the road test of life. So you're facing something that's causing anxiety and fear in you. What are you supposed to do? It says you're supposed to present it to him. Here's the weird part. With thanksgiving. You just get a bad report about your health. You realize you're not as healthy as you thought you were. Instead of sinking into a dismal depression or freaking out and just thinking, what am I? No, the first response of a mature disciple should be, although you're obviously disappointed, you go to God with thanksgiving. How can you have thanksgiving when you've gotten a report like that? Because you know God is bigger than this problem. He really is. And you know that your whole life is in his hands. You know that you've been crucified with Christ, my goodness, as we talked about last week. And you know that you've been raised with him, so you're already victorious. Your identity is already firmly rooted in Christ, so you can't go wrong. Whatever he allows in your life has come through the hand of a loving heavenly father. That's why you can do it with thanksgiving, because you know, you really know God has got this, and that he is more than sufficient for anything you're facing. So you present it to him, and you leave it there with him, and his peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard over your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But but it often doesn't work that way, does it? And the reason it sometimes doesn't work that way in our experience is that we take it to him, we say, Lord, I'm all torn up about this, I don't know what to do, and we talk to him about it, but after we say amen, We take it back on ourselves and go on living as though it's still ours. We brought it to him, but we took it back from him. This passage says, if you presented him with thanksgiving, you'll receive an amazing peace instead of panic. Why? Because you truly have cast your anxiety on him and he truly cares for you. So uh, let me just say in this first point here today about letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart. I, oh, I really want you to hear this. One of the unmistakable, overwhelming traits of a truly mature follower of Jesus is there should be a growing sense of peace that just pervades our personality, even in the midst of life's storms. Doesn't mean you're never afraid of anything. Doesn't mean you never have some anxiety. That's not what we're saying. That you would not be human if that weren't the case. But what I'm saying is that overwhelmingly, your personality will be marked by an indescribable peace. It's indescribable. John Wesley is one of those names you'll hear a lot in Christian literature. He was a great leader in the 1700s and was a part of a great revival that really went on in in the 1700s all across 
the colonies in the United States before we were an independent nation, and as well as across what today we call the UK. And John Wesley, when he was a young man, very well educated, been an Oxford scholar, he came to Georgia, one of these colonies, to save the heathen. He came to minister to Native Americans or anybody who had an ear to hear the gospel. And even though he was a preacher of the gospel, he later testified that he himself was not even saved. I came to save the heathen, but oh, who will save me? He really had never been born again by the Spirit of God. He acknowledged that later. But on his way back to England, things didn't go well, by the way, in Georgia, if you read the story. It's a lot of troubles. On his way back on the ship across the Atlantic, he watched some Moravian Christians on board the ship. And during a ferocious storm in the middle of the Atlantic, when the ship was taking on water and many people, even the sailors, were freaking out, they thought all was lost at some point. He watched these Moravian Christians down in the ship, and they were peaceful. Couldn't understand it. He was scared out of his mind. Wesley was. He had no sense of assurance of salvation. Indeed, as I said, he was not saved. He was afraid. He's lost. He didn't know where he stood with God. He saw these Moravians just singing peacefully. Ships just going berserk. Everybody around is freaking out, and they sang these worship songs to the Lord even in this dire situation. And Wesley couldn't shake the impact of that. He knew they had something he did not possess. And it was the peace of Christ ruling in their hearts that they had. And later, while back in England, he found that peace of Christ when his own heart was strangely warm. And he found salvation by trusting in Christ alone to save it. So the first thing that we see in the, today's passage one of the things God's going to do as he transforms our personality is that there's going to be a peace that kind of rules and reigns, and it's not going to come from us. Thank God. It's going to come from him because he lives in you, and he is sufficient, indeed more than sufficient, for any challenge you're facing today. And if we just stop right there, it'd be a good day, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't that be exciting? We could just leave this place today knowing that he is more than sufficient. But there's more here. These, I'm telling you, this is just a gold mine. So I wanted to handle these three verses together. The second thing he we see here, is that the word of Christ is to dwell. The word of Christ is going to dwell. That's verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We cannot flourish. I, I bet I'm not talking to a single person right now who does not want to flourish in your Christian walk. So hear this. We cannot flourish spiritually if we're detached from the word of God. It's just not going to happen. Now, there's a parallel passage to this one in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, if you want to 
compare those two books when you have some time, you'll be amazed at how closely kind of the themes follow each other. And, and here's a parallel passage. It's Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And notice how it's a little different here. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, that is very close to what Colossians said, isn't it? Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see the similarities there? Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Ephesians says, be filled with the Spirit. Hope you see that parallel. But the result is exactly the same. It's going to result in this mutual edification through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, you ask, Pastor Rex, are you saying that the Spirit indwelling us and the Word indwelling us richly is exactly the same thing? No, I'm not. But what I am saying is that they are used almost synonymously by Paul. And I think the takeaway we ought to have is that the Word of God and the Spirit of God are never to be divorced. They always go together. As I've urged you many times, my desire is that the people of Grace Fellowship would be full of the Spirit and full of the Word. Is that you? Are you full of the Spirit? And are you full of the word? Is it dwelling in you richly? He said, now, Pastor Rex, I want to be a spirit-led Christian. Wonderful. Then you better let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because those go together. He said, oh, but Pastor, no, I'll tell you my passion. I want to be a person of the word of God. I want to be strong in the word of God. Can I tell you a little advice? You better be filled with the spirit because he's your teacher. And you're going to be pretty oblivious about what that word really means and what it's about and its depths and profundity unless the teacher, the teacher, is really teaching you. They can't be divorced. They always go together. So let me say it as emphatically as I possibly can. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot separate the word of God from the spirit of God. Growth in one should inevitably lead to growth in the other. Now, at the risk of sounding a little bit cynical here, just, just give me some extra grace right now, all right? Because I'm a very, very positive person by nature, but we also have to look at reality square in the face, don't we? If I were doing just a basic sort of analysis of the professing Christian community across America, I would say that just based on my observation, I'm no expert, but just based on my observation, I'd say the word of Christ is probably not dwelling richly in a whole bunch of professing Christians. Say, oh, pastor, how could you say such a nasty statement as that? What do you possibly base that on? Thank you for asking. <laughs> I'm so, I love this dialogue we're having. This is really special right now. Well, I would base it on a few things. One, Bible literacy is at an all-time low, as far as I can tell, based on Barna surveys 
Everybody else who's surveying the Southern Baptist Convention, various denominations have all done surveys on Bible literacy and tests. It seems that Bible literacy is at an all-time low, so that's one of the things I would base it on. But even a more powerful thing, I believe, is that I think we're seeing the exact attitudes and behaviors in professing Christian people that we would expect to see from people who are not full of the word and full of the spirit. What exactly do I mean by that? Well, take attitudes toward marriage and the sanctity of marriage and the solidity of marriage and so on. I I think you'd have to agree that among, I'm talking about professing Christians now, I don't know where they stand. I'm just talking about professing Christians. It's about the same, exactly the same as the unbelieving world. Let's take another one, sexual behavior. What you do with your body sexually. Uh, Behavior among professing Christians is almost exactly the same as pagan unbelievers. Survey after survey has shown that and demonstrated that. You see attitudes toward materialism and greed. They're almost identical to non-believers. What about our view toward the poor? Surely our attitude toward marginalized and oppressed and poor people ought to be different since Jesus said so much about it. And the New Testament kind of majors on how we ought to help those who are powerless. No, not much different. Attitudes among professing Christians are just about the same as non-believers. What about our attitude toward our enemies? Now, there's, there's the thing where we'll stand out, right? How we treat people who are not gracious to us. You know what? Again, astoundingly, it's just about the same. So here's my theory. I believe that our personalities, even as professing Christians, are not being shaped so much by the Spirit of God and the Word of God dwelling in us richly, but it's being shaped by our cultural surroundings. Culture is a multifaceted thing. It means the mindsets, the worldviews, the values, the behaviors, the practices, the corporate structures, etc. All these things together and more represent culture. And we are being discipled by social media and the internet. We're being discipled by both our conservative and our liberal TV stations. We're being discipled by the movies we watch, by Netflix, Hulu binges, by our talk shows. We are being well discipled. You say, oh, pastor, I get what you're looking for. Now I know who you are. You're one of those old-timey preachers. Yeah, holiness guys. What you're saying is that we should live 50 miles from the nearest known sin. Yeah. We should live in caves as Christians. And we should stay far away from the internet and social media and movies. That's what you're saying, isn't it, pastor? Absolutely not. All that would do is create Christians who are socially inept and culturally ignorant. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm calling for is Christians who are so full of the word and so full of the spirit that when they see that false philosophy being pushed in that popular movie, they'll immediately call it out for what it is. And no, 
This is a stronghold that's being raised up against the knowledge of God. I can still have some enjoyment of that movie, but hey, wow, that's really off base. And then you have the wisdom to know what to do about that instead of letting it dupe you. We are trying at grace to create Christians who are artistically and culturally relevant, not ignorant. There's no glory to God in that. We want Christ followers who are culturally savvy and relevant, but who also understand the strongholds in their culture that are setting themselves up against the knowledge of God. Those are the Christians I want to do this journey with. Is that you? It's not you unless the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. And it's not you unless you are consistently filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, the prophet Amos, what a guy he was. Back in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, he prophesied of a time that would come, and he vividly describes it there. He says, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. I wonder if we're in that famine today. And so it's so interesting to me that Paul says one of the outcomes of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly is that you're going to do some singing. Did you notice that? So let's talk briefly. What's the difference between a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual psalm? Let me give you some general definitions. With, by a psalm, he's clearly talking about the 150 psalms in the Bible in what is called the Psalter. I hope you know that was the songbook of the Jewish people. Those psalms were put to music. They were sung by the worshiping community. And it's wonderful whenever the word of God, whether it's a psalm or not, is actually put to music. I mean, that is fantastic. So what are hymns? Hymns, just a general definition, then I'll make a few disclaimers. Hymns, I suggest to you, are poetic words generally full of similes and metaphors and often deep biblical imagery, and they're typically written with some sort of rhyme and meter to them. They're put to music, and often one of their purposes was to proclaim to anyone who had ears to hear and even to proclaim to one another in the worshiping community, fellow believers, what we believe. And they are heavy on theology and doctrine many, many times. And they proclaim the major and minor doctrines of the Christian faith. They remind us of who God is and what he's done in Christ. Revelation 4 talks about who he is. Revelation 5 talks about what he's done in Christ. And that describes worship, at least in heaven. And I think that ought to be a pretty good paradigm for us. And throughout the centuries, again, virtually every major and minor theological doctrine has somehow been dealt with and proclaimed in a hymn of one kind or another. So what does he mean by spiritual songs? Well, I believe spiritual songs 
And it's often hard to discern, really, when you look at what I would call a spiritual song and a hymn, it's hard often to discern because they often have many of the same characteristics as each other. But they are songs that come a little more emotively from the heart and mind and are more spontaneous in nature. Their primary purpose is probably so much to proclaim truth as it is our personal response to the truth. You might think of them like love songs to God or praise songs to God that express the deep, profound gratitude and emotion in your heart, and you're responding to his presence in you and among us. Now, let me make a very important footnote here before we move on. It is possible It is possible for both hymns and spiritual songs to be a bit off base theologically. I hope everybody's hearing that. It's possible. I don't think it's super frequent, but it's definitely possible. Psalms, on the other hand, cannot be theologically off base because they're infallibly inspired by the Spirit of God. So you're not going to get any bad doctrine from the Psalms. But make no mistake, both hymns and spiritual songs have the possibility of being a bit theologically flawed because they're not inspired on the level of the Psalms of the Bible. And if we had the time and the desire, I could give you example after example of both hymns and what I would call spiritual songs that are a bit off base theologically, even though the authors probably didn't intend it. In fact, just literally, this happened just a few days ago. Debbie, my wife, was showing me a a song. I can't remember if it was number one on a certain kind of chart uh, or if it was just in the top 10 or whatever it was. I think it was really high, though, on the list. And she read the lyrics to the song, and we looked at each other with bug eyes like, that's number one? That song is so off base biblically. That's scary. And people are crazy about that. That's sad, but that's possible with both hymns and spiritual songs. And it's my belief that healthy Christians and healthy local churches are going to have a good dose of all three of these expressions. Now, I know some people prefer only hymns, and they often complain that spiritual songs are too sappy and sentimental and often too repetitive. Others prefer spiritual songs, and they assert that hymns don't have enough emotive value. So let me say it again. I believe a healthy Christian and a healthy local church would do best to have a steady diet of all three of these expressions but we're always going to have our personal preferences. But in today's passage, Paul says that one of the outcomes of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly is you're going to want to sing. So hear me loud and clear. Healthy Christ follower is going to want to worship God. I'm worried about some of you. I don't get it. You can't hold me back. I mean, when I just begin, I mean, just begin, not even really get into it. When I just begin to think about all that God has done for me, you're not going to shut me up. 
I'm going to want to turn my face to heaven. I'm going to want to give him all of my love, all of my desire. I want to worship the living God. Is he alive in your life? Christians are singing people. We'll never apologize for that. Without that, a vital part of your life worship is going to be missing. But there's one final thing here, and that's in verse 17. And this says, if you really want your personality to be transformed, let thankfulness reign. Let thankfulness reign in your life. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed. Now notice the inclusiveness in this statement. Nothing is left out here. Whatever you do, you're to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's ask that question because the Bible says this quite a bit. What does it mean? You ever wondered? What does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus? We end our prayers with, in Jesus' name. Oh, what, what in the heck is that about? Who, who dreamed that up? I think we can understand this best, perhaps, by an analogy with the legal world. Let's say that a wealthy fin financier, who's just a billionaire, came to trust in your real estate knowledge and savvy and insight, and he hires you. The billionaire financier hires you to buy a huge, a very large commercial building for him. And he legally grants you power of attorney to make that real estate purchase on his behalf. So that means, because he's given you the authority, the power of attorney, it means you can sign papers, you can purchase that huge commercial building in his name. If you tried to do it on your own, in your own name, they'd laugh you out of the bank but you can do it in his name. You can do business in the name of the one who granted you that power and authority. Now watch this. That does not permit you to do anything you want to in his name. You can't go buy an amusement park in his name. That's not what the power of eternity was specified for. You can't even go buy a pair of shoes in his name. Because that's not what the authority was given for. You can only do in his name what his desire and will is. In other words, what he's authorized you to do. So when you're carrying out his will in the authority he's granted, that's what it means to do it in his name. And Christian, good news. God has empowered you to act in his name. There's all kinds of things you can do in his name. You can preach the gospel in his name and know that his stamp of authority is on that. He is behind you, empowering that message supernaturally when you share it. You can cast out demons in his name. Did you know that? Not your own authority. Ooh, they'll laugh you out of the room. But in the authority of Jesus, you can cast out demons. You can clothe the naked in his name. You can feed the hungry in his name. You can help the hurting in his name, et cetera, et cetera. You can also do anything in his name that legitimately fits within his will and his kingdom cause. We can act as his agents under the scope of authorization he's given us, and we're doing it 
for his benefit. Jesus made an astounding statement in John 14, 14. I mean, I, I, I just, I almost get, you know, just mesmerized by this statement. He said, you may ask me for anything in my name, in my name, and I will do it. That does not mean that you can just ask for anything and then slap in the name of Jesus on the end of your prayer and you'll get it. That is not what that means. If it's not for his purposes, his plans, his kingdom cause, it does not qualify. And so we all need to realize that we can easily, well, I'm, I'm speaking for myself here. I, I, I don't know if I'm speaking for you. I can easily step outside of the will of God just like that. In a moment, because of my sinful nature, fighting against the spirit all the time. But what a wonderful challenge. And I challenge you to do something that I do. I do this literally, literally every single day. I might miss a day here or there, but pretty much as I go to God every morning, I say something like this. I don't have it memorized, but I just say something like, Lord Jesus, I'm under your authority today. You said in Matthew 28 that all authority had been given to you, and then you commissioned me and all of my brothers and sisters to go in your name. And so I'm, I'm under your authority. That I want nothing more or nothing less than your will for me. I trust in you with all my heart. I ask you to direct my paths this day. Father, would you give me divine appointments? Interrupt the things that are on my calendar and orchestrate things divinely according to your will. Put me in the right place at the right time with the right people. May everything I say and do in word and deed be all in your name according to your will and your benefit. And friends, when you get up every day and live in his name with that kind of commission on your life, woo, it naturally leads to thanksgiving. In fact, this is the thing I want to close with. Some of you may have noticed this, but did you notice that all three of these verses we've looked at today actually talk about grateful, thankful hearts. Think about verse 15. It ends with, and be thankful. Verse 16 ends with, with gratitude in your hearts to God. Verse 17 says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the overwhelming emotion of a mature Christian is thankfulness. Why? Because my sovereign Lord sees the end from the beginning and he's working through all of life's up and downs to fulfill his design for my life. Boy, you talk about a transformed personality. We let his peace rule. When we let the word of Christ dwell, oh my goodness. And when we do everything in his name, that is one powerful formula. Father, would you help us today to live that way? We are yours. We're called by your name. You've given us your commission. You've given us your authority and your name to do it in. And help us to walk in that authority day by day. We'll know who we are. We'll know whose we are. We'll know where we're going. And we'll know why we're here in Jesus' name.
Amen.